Hello there. The reverse grid race we didn't know we wanted, penalties, heroic defences and... <laughs> Rolandinho Scorcher! This is Berlin Watch. On tonight's programme I have motorsport journalist Aurora Delali. Um, Aurora, welcome back. And um, it was good of Formula E to give us a reverse grid race to finish the season, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that wasn't the intention. Anyway, thanks for having me again, Stuart. It's a pleasure as always. I'm sure it wasn't the original intention, but that's pretty much what we got today. I got some pretty strong flashbacks at the Formula One Italian Grand Prix in 2019 last year. Hmm. It was a bit farcical that time around and it was pretty much the same thing you know uh, drivers waiting for uh, track conditions to get better to get um, a better slipstream maybe from from their teammates and adversaries and honestly yeah it's it's not really something that is good for the show in my opinion i mean of course it's good for the banter it can be good for the drama but i don't think anybody really came out of this you know with some positives in my opinion even the race to be honest like i think it really showed that you know the formula grid is a very competitive grid but i think that the differences in the in the driver's expertise was pretty evident today the 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 race apart from you know some pretty interesting duels which i'm sure we will discuss later was pretty much tame when uh, when the top drivers are you know battling it out in the back right yeah um but uh c certainly um and by the way pleasure's all mine uh, welcome back but uh, um yeah I, I think maybe we should uh, begin by talking about qualifying because uh, that was the reason why the race panned out the way it did so um Obviously, uh, it was all shaped by uh, Group 1, wasn't it? And um, in Group 1, uh, the four former champions who are still driving, so uh, Degrassi, De Costa, uh, Verne and Buemi, all of them managed to play themselves, as, as it were. And um, so just to um, um, talk through it briefly for anyone who didn't see it... Uh, De Costa and Verne uh, seems to be jostling for position and uh, Degrassi was told on the radio he had to get past both of them to have a chance of crossing the line in time and Buemi was just behind them, he was nowhere and um, yeah, we, we had a situation where um, all four of the drivers failed to qualify uh, or set a time in qualifying because they didn't cross the line in time. Now, yeah, you said you said it was good for banter. It was hilarious for banter, but uh, you, you're probably right. It's not good for the quality of racing to have uh, the top four competitors at the back of the grid. Absolutely, I think it pretty much translated very well in the race. Again, of course, it's my personal opinion, but I think that not having that kind of dogfight in the front really influenced the whole race and of course again we had some pretty amazing duels for you know p3 for example and other you know top positions by drivers who are usually you know midfield drivers in formula re at least uh but yeah i don't think it had the same entertainment value as a normal formula re race would have had uh but to be honest again i think the drivers and the teams 
I agree, really played themselves. And uh, I've noticed that even yesterday, if I remember correctly, uh, the race director director actually called for teams and drivers to use the entire uh, allocated session time for free practice, for example, because they were pretty much uh, waiting for track conditions to get better, but we didn't get any action. So I feel that in a way, uh, race direction understands that it's somewhat, you know, some kind of a betrayal towards the fans when we do not get the 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 entertainment value that we can expect and that we are so sometimes promised. Well, yes, although uh, I think very few people tune into free practice and even fewer tune in expecting um, wall-to-wall action. I think uh, that that's pretty much a session specifically for the teams to set up their cars. So uh, should they not be free to use that how they see fit? It's more qualifying that's for the fans, isn't it? I'm sure that's the case. Um, I honestly have no idea about the the broadcast numbers in uh, in free practice, but I normally curate free practice for for my magazine, so I know the numbers in people actually interested in knowing the results about that, and they are not that many. But again, I'm sure that if race direction feels the need to to actually compel drivers and teams to use the allocated time, then they believe that. The, bro- the broadcast itself deserves the recognition and the attention that maybe even fans don't know they need. Hmm. It's it's so interesting to get this perspective because uh, I I just come out of that race on a bit of a high because uh, if I I thought that honestly I was going to have an, have to write another race report about DS to cheetah and how well they use the attack mode zone or or some other thing that I've already written but uh, this gives me something new to write about and uh, Oliver Oland uh, tremendously uh, well kept the lead tremendously at the front um, and didn't ever seem particularly threatened um, but. Um, as you've highlighted, uh, it wasn't um, the best cars uh, or the best drivers necessarily at the front, although we can say Roland might be growing into that. Um, but yeah, um, w- were there any battles up and down the field that caught your eye? I, I would mention obviously the obvious one being Lotterer and Rast, but uh, De Costa fought his way up the field to a certain degree and... Um, yeah, there, there was there was a decent um, move on Blomqvist by Buemi to get that final point as well. I mean, again, I agree that the highlight was definitely Rust and Lotterer. And uh, as you know by now, my uh, background is more in endurance racing and in GT racing. So, of course, that was a personal highlight of mine as well, considering Rust and Lotterer's past in, uh, in these categories. Um, But yeah, I also think that Alex Lynn proved once again his prowess on track. I think uh, he has been a very, you know, under the radar, underrated driver uh, during the past few years. And of course, um, last year he actually lost the Jaguar seat to James Calado. Uh, But I think, again, he proved just how much he deserves that place in Formula E. And I think that he's shows are always very very entertaining i particularly liked uh one overtake which was actually against uh lynn lynn lost the position in that instance but it was lotter on lynn in the in the very first stages of the race i think it was around the 10 minute mark uh that was an amazing overtake and really one for the books in my opinion um 
but yeah, and also I, of course, enjoyed Buemi's comeback. Uh, I think he has been the only driver starting from the very back of the field today to get in the points, right? Yeah, he was P10. So uh, that was an amazing drive by him, as always. And I think that Nissan really had the pace today. And Oliver Rowland, of course, showed that. That was a pretty solitary race by him. Yeah, the the only time he was uh, really uh, he had any uh, hint of a challenge was when he went through the attack mode zone um, after half distance and uh, Frantz had an opportunity but wasn't quite close enough. Um, the rest of the time it was a pretty masterful win and I think Nissan are going to be particularly pleased with this given that uh, Nissan Edams developed that. Uh, um, twin motor powertrain which uh, up until last season was a perfectly acceptable powertrain and um, in short the collective decision was made by all of the manufacturers uh, and all of the teams that uh, uh, it should be uh, banned for this season. Uh, I, the, the reasoning at the time was given as to prevent an arms race between teams um, and indeed it did that but uh, it also meant that Nissan had to develop an entirely new powertrain for this season. And I think it's not really until Berlin where they've really looked on the pace and uh, able to challenge for podiums and wins, has it? I agree. And I mean, um, of course, we as passionate as we are, we followed the um, Nissan powertrain uh, dilemma closely. But again, the thing is that in Formula E, of course, um, the priority is always um, maintaining a close competition. And of course, this means also maintaining a, a tight uh, ruling on budget and research and development and the actual amount of resources you can pour into the Formula E team. And while I think that this is also part of the DNA of this category and part of the reason why I love Formula E, uh, I also think that, yeah, of course it has its side effects. And we've seen that Nissan actually developed a very clever um, op uh, option that gave them like a lot of prowess last year and they couldn't shine as bright this year. But again, I think it's in the DNA of the competition and um, I can understand the reason for that for this reason. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, hats off to Oliver Rowland anyway. Um, some other incidents in the race. Uh, Lucas Degrassi again got caught up in an incident at turn one. Uh, this time the stewards uh, found him at fault rather than the other party, um, as what as was um, apparently the case with Massa uh, in, in uh, a couple of races ago. But this time he was given a five second uh, time penalty for uh, causing an accident, according to the stewards. And um, he tried he tried the same move he did on Massa um, in the previous race. He um, turned in rather sharply and tried to put the squeeze on and intimidate the driver behind him. Um, obviously, he's going to come out and say uh, he wasn't at fault and uh, he was just driving his normal line because that's what he normally says. But do you think privately there'll be a bit of contrition and a bit of looking at himself? Because, you know, it, this seems to be happening quite often with Degrassi and he's been involved in an awful lot in this Berlin season as well. And uh, Lucas, uh, a difficult day starting P23 uh, and then having the incident and dropping to P21. So um, what's the race like from your perspective? Well, when you, exactly the same as, as René uh, said, when you have a bad qualifying, which was the case of not putting a lap together, 
especially when the car, is, car was so good after free practice and uh, we managed to stay always in the top five both free practices so the car was, was mega today so it's very frustrating to have started so far back and then when you start on the on the back there it's, it's just like chaos and crashes and bird I think spawn and debris crashing to bird and crashing to Nick and my whole front was destroyed and then I had also the incident with uh, with Gunter that he crashed into the Ambrosio, I crashed into him again. So yeah, it's just like uh, completely chaos back there. So you, the, the, the only positive thing I got from today is that I got dropped to group two, which helps a lot because uh, being in group one uh, the whole year uh, really, really messed, messed up the, the, my qualifying average because it's just so hard to, if you look at all the two podiums I had, I was not in Group 1. So I was in Group 2 in Riyadh, I was Group 2 here after one race. So I hope tomorrow we can use this strategically and uh, make some good points. And we've got a question here from Matt from Autosports. Um, were you surprised to receive a penalty for the clash with DaCosta after, uh, after the similar race where, uh, where Massa got... Um, sorry, let me, re let me restart that. Um, were you surprised that you, re you re received a penalty for the clash with DaCosta after a similar three incident uh, with Massa and seen as his fault? Were you uh, surprised I, by that? To be honest, when they told me that I got a five-second five uh, time penalty, I really thought it was because of Gunter. Not, n with DaCosta, it was clearly DaCosta's fault. With, could, could, with Gunter, you can argue, okay, Gunter crashed into the Ambrosio and I was behind and I crashed into him. Uh, just because I was so close and that I think led to a puncture for him but the Costa crash to, to have a penalty for that I, I to be honest I don't understand but anyway wouldn't have not changed uh, in any way my uh, my race I had a puncture I was on the back but the car was mega and when we came back we did the fastest lap of the race um, had a, an amazing pace uh, compared to the leaders so really looking forward for tomorrow well, to be honest, if you're asking me if he's going to look back at what he did and actually change his mind and, you know, understand that he may have been a fault, I would say, no, he's not going to do that because this isn't, you know, Lucas' character. Of course, I don't know him personally, uh, but I, I think he showed uh, time and time again the way he uh, interacts with other drivers and with racing itself like he has a very peculiar racecraft very aggressive racing style and this also translates in in the way he actually uh, confronts the stewards and confronts um you know this type of investigation and instances so yeah i don't think he's going to to look back at that and think oh maybe that was my fault because that would be incredibly out of character of him. Of course, with this, I'm not saying that he's incapable of recognizing his mistakes, because I'm sure that's not the case. It's just that he probably um, isn't, you know, doesn't strike me as the type to immediately admit, admit the fault uh, or immediately being able to recognize that maybe he has to acknowledge a certain problem but i'm sure that massa um will have something to say about this too of course in this case he wasn't necessarily uh, in the middle of the action but we've seen that he was penalized um last week uh, in the last race and he had something to say about the fact that in a previous race 
Lucas was not even investigated. So I'm sure that the stewards also looked into that and tried to, you know, kind of patch that in a sense. This was uh, undoubtedly the best race so far in Formula E for René Rast. He, he's had one previous uh, um, cameo appearance in Berlin with uh, um, Aguri um, in uh, season two. But uh, this is the first time that he's been there um, for any number of races. And um, obviously he came in as a mid-season replacement for Daniel Apt. We all know what happened with Daniel, but... Uh, um, there were question marks because um, DTM drivers, more often than not, don't convert well to Formula E. You can say Pascal Verlein was a DTM driver, but he was also an F1 driver and many other things. Um, it can be difficult for a DTM driver to come straight over to uh, Formula E and transfer the driving skills. But he seems to have done it with a reasonably quick learning curve, doesn't he? I was surprised as well, to be honest. Like, I've always held uh, Rene Ras in a very high esteem, considering his DTM and endurance and GT3 experience is one of the most experienced drivers in the grid at the moment. Of course, not in Formula E, but, you know, his palmarès really speaks for itself. Um, but yeah, I wasn't expecting uh, expecting him to adapt so quickly necessarily because again, and we've said this also uh, the last time I was a, a guest in your podcast, being a very, very good racing driver in other categories doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do well in Formula E because it's just so different from anything else. Uh, but he really proved himself and I think that um, we can easily compare him, not necessarily, as you were saying, with Verlaine, because Verlaine also had a lot of single-seater experience at high level, of course, in Formula 1. But I think um, Rast really proved what he's capable of when you consider what Gary Puffett did um, two years ago. He wasn't necessarily, you know, the best driver on the grid. And, of course, we can argue that HWA at the time didn't have the resources to really compete in the higher ranks, but he didn't prove himself enough. And also Nico Müller, again, Müller definitely isn't in a competitive car, um, but, I mean, he, he could do better, and he knows that. He sincerely knows that. Uh, but, again, I think it's really down to expertise. Rust is older and has more racing expertise than Müller, and of France, of course, as well. So, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. Hmm. Um, thinking of thinking actually about Muller and also about Puffett. Uh, f first of all, yes, uh, Puffett did join uh, HWA two years ago, although um, uh, with 2020 being the awful year that it's been uh, and feeling like three years in one, it's quite difficult to actually believe that that season finished in um, finished only a year ago. But anyway, um, uh, with Muller, I, I think he was genuinely being talked up as being the golden child. Um, there were lots of people lobbying for him to join um, Audi last um, at the end of last season uh, when Apt was given his one year deal, uh, which was terminated, obviously. Um do you think that they were wrong to do so? And um, do, um, are you surprised at how Rast has uh, effectively come from nowhere and supplanted Muller as the uh, as as the new boy uh, who Audi are looking up to? Well, 
to be honest, I think that when the talks came out of Muller uh, possibly going to Audi, to the works team, uh, I thought that uh, Robin Freins was being criminally overlooked. I think that Freins uh, normally flies under the radar because, of course, he has Sam Bird as a, as a teammate and that can be hard on anybody. But again, also today, Freins constantly proves what he can do. So, yeah, I think that in that instance, I wouldn't have necessarily uh, chosen Muller as my first choice. I would have gone with Freins, to be honest. But from a business perspective, I mean, um, the background from which Rust is coming from is that Audi is withdrawing uh, their DTM operations. So they have something like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine. Honestly, I don't follow DTM that much, so I cannot tell precisely. But they have an awful lot of works drivers that they really need to, to find another place for. And of course, Audi is very, very invested in customer racing, in GT3 racing, but these drivers are such at, a, at such a high level that to be honest, you cannot expect them to, to put them in a gentleman driving uh, competition, you know? So I think that this one for Marie was actually the only acceptable choice for someone of Russ caliber. I mean, if you think about having to reallocate somebody like Loic Duval, which is currently uh, employed in DTM, and he, they will, Audi will have to find another seat from someone for someone like Loic Duval. It's very, very difficult. So I understand that considering they already have two works drivers in Formula E, they didn't want to promote from within, but actually get uh, the seat to somebody like Rust, which couldn't could not have easily been allocated just in GT3 racing. Mm. Uh, to to round off the race, uh, BMW very disappointing race. Uh, Alexander Sims hasn't really had a good race uh, since we came to Berlin, uh, and um, uh, Max Gunter involved in yet another incident. Um, and uh, yeah, actually, I was talking on the Motorsport 101 podcast the other day, uh, and um, I, I think it was Dre Harrison said that uh, it pointed out something I hadn't noticed, which is unless he's in a winning position, Gunter tends to get involved in some kind of midfield accident. Uh, that's obviously something he can work on, but uh, our biggest disappointment to BMW, I would think, would be losing second in the championship. Um, I, to, to add to that point, um, what do you make of Mercedes' fall off? Because that was such a disappointing race for them, wasn't it? I, I did not quite understand what happened to, to Mercedes because... Uh, as far as I know, uh, the, the amount of resources and of people working behind the scenes in the HPP department, which is their high performance powertrain department, and basically they curate both Formula One and Formula E from the powertrain perspective, is simply astonishing. Of course, all within the regulations of Formula E, but it's just so much prowess into one team. And I think that at the start of the season, they already proved like what they were capable of doing. They were being regular top three contenders at some point for a couple of races. They were also first in the constructor standings. So honestly, I cannot tell you what happened there. I have no idea and I cannot find a, a reasonable explanation for that. They had a couple of reliability issues in the past few races, but... 
you know, mo most of the time they were just stuck in traffic or something similar. And again, I wouldn't blame the drivers in any way. I think that both Van Dorn and De Vries have proved uh, their worth in Formula E and definitely, definitely need to remain on the grid for many, many years to come. Uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't know what happened there because the premise was so good that it's kind of baffling how this all went downhill. Yeah, uh, baffling and um, su similar words used by Susie Wolf, uh, who is the boss of Venturi, the uh, customer team of Mercedes. Uh, she said it was alarming how much the team had fallen back based on their pre-shutdown performances, Venturi that is. And um, it makes me wonder if the issue is not simply powertrain development, which obviously... Um, with Mercedes budget and with the uh, former Ilmore team over at Mercedes High Performance Powertrains, I'm sure they can fix uh, during the closed season. Um, it's quite a long closed season as well, so there's plenty of time for teams to work on this kind of thing. And if you would like to read more about Mercedes, then uh, my interview with Ian James, the CEO of Mercedes EQ Formula E team, is now up on the website, motione.org. Um, Aurora, have you uh, written anything in the last uh, day or two that you'd like people to go and read? I, I guess meant much of it's in Italian, but I'm sure we have uh, Italian speakers uh, listening to the podcast. Yeah, actually, um, I did quite a lot of work in the in the past week. Although, um, as I was telling you the other the other day, uh, I mainly curate the the endurance department in my in my magazine, so I'm pretty busy with that kind of uh, work. But uh, one pretty interesting interview I've had was with Sam Bird. Um, and it was right after race two, I think, or before race two, right after qualifying. Anyway, at the time, he still had some hopes of winning the title. Uh, but apart from that, he gave some pretty useful insights into uh, actually the alternate layout. So the layout uh, we're racing in for this round and tomorrow's round. Uh, so definitely check that out on f1ingenerale.com if you can read Italian, because that's what that was a pretty good interview. I like that. All right. Well, Sam Bird's a great guy to interview, isn't he? He, he, he always he always gives more away than you expect. Yeah, absolutely. He's very talkative and it's something that we really can appreciate in drivers, of course. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, really appreciate you coming on, Aurora. Thank you so much. And um, uh, what do you expect to see tomorrow? More of the same mixed up action or do you think it'll be a return to uh, routine? Yeah, I think that after what happened today in qualifying, teams will do anything in their power to avoid another spectacle like that. So I will expect some proper Formula E racing, so plenty of overtaking action, uh, plenty of crazy duels for, you know, points finishes, and the usual entertainment value that this championship offers. Superb. All right. Well, thank you, Aurora, and thank you for listening also to Berlin Watch. Uh, we have one more Berlin Watch to come tomorrow evening. Um, it should be up pretty soon after the final race in Berlin. And um, if you'd like to find exclusive content from Motion E, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash Motion E org or one word. And um, for as little as a dollar a month, you can find a weekly newsletter and uh, um, audio content from interviews as soon as it's been done and much more. So um, thanks, Aurora. And um, I hope that you enjoy the race tomorrow as well.